0: Well, last week, Isaiah showed us how the people of Judah finally came to the end of the rope. They had tried by every possible means of self-salvation to create a life for themselves, Um, but they were finally left with no other options but God himself. And remember how we saw that although the people's trust in God was paltry, God met them and he covered them with salvation. Today we cover a a little bit of difficult territory in the Bible. Isaiah chapter 34 displays God's judgment upon this world. Isaiah 35 displays God's salvation for this world. And what we'll see is that the two must go together. For without the judgment of God, there can be no salvation from God. But most people today... They uh, demand that God not be a God who judges. After all, God is love, they say. But what we'll need to acknowledge today is that if God is love, then he must also love enough not to be indifferent to evil. Let me pray before we begin. Father in heaven, this is a hard topic, um, and it's right and good that it's hard. Um, but it shows something about our need of salvation. And it also shows the length to which you will go, and that you care for your people, and that you care for this earth. We pray, Holy Spirit, that as you dwell in the midst of your people, you would help point us to our Savior, to enlarge in him in the eyes of our hearts, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, I'm going to show a a three-minute clip of a Holocaust survivor recounting the day that salvation came to his concentration camp. What I want you to do is try to immerse yourself in what that must have been like. The evil
1: captors are gone and you've been set free. I had nightmares of course for, for, I would say for a couple of months, you know, waking up thinking that I'm still in the camps and I was so happy that I was in a a, a real bed. In order to have a little bit of pleasure, let's say, which is there's not too much of it in the camps, I made friends with two Polish kids. We didn't get too much sleep and we used to just get out real early in the morning because in the barracks it was just crying and screaming and praying, and it wasn't unusual that a prisoner who was laying next to you to go to sleep when you woke up, they were dead. In any of these camps, everything is so the same day in and day out, that when anything unique happens that is not on the schedule, you always immediately try to talk about it. Is this good news or bad news? One morning, we came out. So something went wrong with the video? Did it not... It'll last minute. Ah. well something went wrong with the
0: video <laughs> <laughs> so uh, no worries right try to picture um, so they they this gentleman and his two Polish uh, friends they were all kids at the time they noticed um, that the guard tower was empty and so they went crept to the front gate and they noticed um, in the distance, they saw a man on a horse. And it was through the fog, but then the fog cleared. And they saw that the man on the horse was a Russian officer. And he came forward. And he said to them, he says, um, we, have, we are liberating this camp. Um, we are sending we are sending doctors and food. Um, for now, just stay here. We will be here shortly. And then he fired his gun at the lock. And the lock was removed. And then this gentleman and his friends, they went from barracks to barracks in whatever languages they knew. And they said, we've been set free, we've been set free. And then he finds that the SS officer and his family, that their house had been vacated. And they're in there and he turns on the water and there's hot water uh, and there's food in the cupboards. And um, in the end what he ends up doing is he finds these new clothes He puts them on, nice, fresh, and clean after taking a shower. And then he rejoices. He starts to cry when he talks about it. But he stomps on his prison clothes with great joy and delight. And then the story ends. So there we go. Um, Now let's act like that video just ended. Here we are. Before the prison camp could come to experience salvation, first, the enemy had to be powerfully defeated. The Nazis were an evil empire. The injustice that they brought to this world, think about it, is incalculable, right? How do you tally it all up? And the battle of World War II, between good and evil was long and hard. So much blood was shed, but finally peace prevailed. Today, anyone of sound mind agrees that the Nazi empire was evil and that justice demanded that they be fought against and brought to justice. And so listen, this principle exists. Judgment precedes salvation. Without the Nazis being judged and eliminated, no concentration camp would have experienced salvation and the freedom that comes with it, right? Isaiah's chapters 34 and 35 are properly studied together. For in chapter 34, Isaiah shows us the judgment of God upon that which is evil in this world. And in chapter 35, he shows us the coming salvation of God that's going to spring forth on this earth someday to come. The two belong together. And more than that, what I think we will see and agree with is that we long for both. We long for justice that only God can bring, And we long for salvation that only God can bring. So those will be our two headings. So first, the judgment of God. The big idea here is this. What our hearts long for is justice. That is, everything being set right and good triumphing over evil. For every wrong against us and other people to have its day in court we long for ultimate good to triumph over all evil once and for all. God promises that day will come in chapter 34. Now, this is the place in the Bible, one of the places, in which naysayers will say things like, See, God is mean and cruel. My God would never do anything like that. So, let me read, and we'll talk it through. Uh, chapter 34. Draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations, and furious against all the host. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All the, their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword, it is sated with blood, it is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Bozrah, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild ox shall fall with them, and young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood, and their soil shall be gorged with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch out the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness, its nobles, there is no one there to call it a kingdom, and all its princes shall be nothing. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles, and thistles, in its fortresses, it shall be the haunt of jackals and abode for ostriches, and wild animals shall meet with hyenas, and wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Indeed, there the night bird settles and finds for herself a resting place. There the owl nests and lays and Hatches and gathers her young in her shadow. Indeed, there the hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. Now seek and read from the book of the Lord. Not one of these shall be missing, none shall be without her mate. For the mouth of the Lord has commanded, and the Spirit has gathered them. He has cast the lot for them, his hand has portioned it out to them with the line. They shall possess it forever from generation to generation they shall dwell in it. We live in a culture that's quick to argue that God is a God of love, but he's not a God of judgment. And when modern people read Isaiah 34, they're aghast with the savage imagery. For instance, For the Lord is enraged against all nations. The mountains shall flow with their blood. The Lord has a sword, it is sated with blood. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Bozrah, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. For the Lord has a day of vengeance. When people hear such words today, they are appalled and they are certain that they can teach God a thing or two about civilized living. They say, surely God isn't angry or wrathful my God surely would never punish any human being. Well, maybe Hitler or Bernie Madoff. Now, do you see what goes on when people say there is no way that God is a judging God? They themselves are passing judgment on God. I mean, consider the irony of it all. People judging God for being a God who judges. And so if you're here today and you say, God is not a God of judgment, then you are judging and insisting that God cannot judge any human beings, but it's perfectly fine for you to do so. This rebuke alone should be enough to silence our foolish ideas about God. But people in our culture will insist that it's abusive to tell people that God has a day of judgment coming, like it's some sort of hate speech But my friends, God doesn't see it that way. In fact, the very first verses of of chapter 34, we see God declaring loud and clear so everyone can hear that there's a day of judgment coming. Verse 1, draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear, and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. The imagery here is that of a a courtroom where God is a God... a judge on his throne, and he's calling in all the defendants to come and hear this big decree. Listen, the world doesn't want to think about the judgment to come, but God wants us to stop and think. He wants us to ask questions like, well, what does it mean to live in a universe in which God judges evil? And you remember last week's sermon, how I mentioned that we... Tend to fear the wrong things. We fear the many ways our self salvation could fail us, right? We fear losing our jobs. We fear getting hurt by a lover. We fear not having enough in our retirement accounts. We fear anything and everything except God, our Creator. And so, can you begin to understand why the Bible repeatedly says that it's the fear of the Lord that's the beginning? wisdom and so what if there is a God and what if how you live actually matters to him and what if God will judge you for how you live these are the questions that Isaiah is pressing upon us see either you come to experience the salvation that Isaiah shows us in chapter 35 or we rightly receive the judgment that is on display in Isaiah 34. You know, today, if you were to go out on the street and ask 100 people if God would punish people who live evil lives, I think they would say, yes. Yeah, God, God better punish evil people. But then if you were to ask these same 100 people if they themselves are divert, deserving punishment, almost to a T, they would say, no, nah, no, not me. I mean, I've tried to live a good life. I'm not perfect, but I'm not evil. This proves that people tend to judge themselves in relative terms, right? We compare ourselves to the Hitlers of this world and we judge ourselves to be pretty decent enough. But the problem here is with who is doing the judging. The rightful judge is not us. The rightful judge is God himself. You know, my family enjoys watching the Westminster Dog Show. Uh, How about you guys? You guys like that? Your head nods? It's fun, right? Now, imagine if they recruited me to be the judge in the best of show category. I think I'd have a lot of fun, but I wouldn't know what I was doing. Sorry, Pekingese and Frenchies. But the Labrador Retriever is gonna win best of show (laughs) with me as the judge. which shows this truth, right? Think it through. We human beings, do we not bring our own prejudices into the courtroom when we judge? But when when it comes to our lives, understand this, God is not just the rightful judge over us, but we can be certain that his judgments are right and fair and perfect. I think he likes both Labradors and Pekingese. And when God judges every human being, listen, we all fall short. I'm not saying that we don't at times do good things, right? Or don't sacrifice um, with loving acts towards other people. Consider this, the outlaw, Jesse James, he loved his mother. And he put his life at risk multiple times whenever he could just to visit her. Like Jesse James, we think we will stand before God and say, you know, I might have robbed a few banks and killed a few people, but see how I loved my mother. What I'm saying, what the Bible says, is that there's no human being that has not sinned, and therefore we're all guilty of sin. Has not every human being done things like cheated on an exam or say mean or hurtful words to another person? Have we not committed adultery in our hearts by looking lustfully at someone who's not our spouse? Or are there not many times when we know that someone is in need, but we're too dang lazy to get off the couch? Or we covet things that our neighbor possesses? Come on now. This hits home, does it not? You can't just excuse these things but judge others for doing the same thing. There are so many ways in which you and I have sinned in our lives and deserve to be judged. But even more, think this through. Please do. Ultimately, sin isn't all the naughty little things that you do. Listen, ultimately, sin is to live in the Creator's world as if he doesn't exist <laughs> think about this if there is a god above who created all things including humanity and therefore he created you and then you function and live your life as if he doesn't exist hoarding and consuming all the resources god has given you using the god-given gifts and talents and intellect for your own glory to live this way think about it it's evil And so, when we comprehend sin this way, we must realize that we're all sinners. And Paul wrote of this in Romans chapter 3. For there is no distinction, no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, we're all deserving God's judgment. But hear how Paul finishes the statement, how judgment and salvation go together. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. (laughs) Salvation. Maybe God isn't such a mean God after all. The same God who judges the world has provided salvation for the world through faith in the life and death and resurrection of his own son. But that's for the next point. For now, I hope we can see that justice and judgment is what we truly long for. Just take a moment. If you had a pen and pencil, you could just write down from your being a little kid all the way up to however old you are now. Think of all the evil that has befallen you, things that have never been brought to justice, cruel words on the playground, you know, all those kind of things. It could be a small thing like a teacher purposely giving you a bad grade or a friend gossiping about you behind your back. When things like this happen, we long for justice. Let me give you an example from my own line. All right, here we go. Is this being recorded? I hope not. <laughs> All right, yeah, it is. All right, here we go. When I was 19 years old, I was speeding on my motorcycle and I got pulled over. The officer pulled me over up into this long driveway. I'm off my motorcycle, took my helmet off. And he rushes towards me. Like, you could the anger was just coming out of his nostrils. He pushed me and spun me around as I had my hands in the air. Then he told me to spread my hands on the roof of his police car. And I complied. I spread my hands. And then he viciously took my head and smashed it into the roof of his police car. I was dazed. He handcuffed me. And I realized in that moment that my front teeth were floating around inside my mouth. And I turned around and I spit my teeth into his face. And I said, my mother's gonna kills you. (laughs) evil produces in us an instantaneous cry for justice. My dad told me later, he says, don't worry, son, I know people in the mob, and there'll be a day out of the blue when he'll just disappear. And I'm like, yes! I'm like, well, no! (laughs) The police officer filed assault charges against me, saying I assaulted him. We sued the police department. Internal Affairs came and investigated. The case was dropped against me so long as I didn't pursue the lawsuit against Officer Whistler. They even sent me a bill for $119 to repaint the roof of the police car. Where's the justice in that? I heard that he was fired quietly from the police department just a few months later. And likely, guess what? He was hired somewhere else. As far as I know, justice has not been served, but someday Officer Whistler will stand before God. And unless Christ has become his savior, God will rightly and fairly judge Officer Whistler and punish him rightly. And he will go where evil deserves to go. See, hell is the place where people who say no to God in this lifetime get their wish for all eternity. My friends, please think this through. God's love and his justice must go hand in hand. A God of love cannot turn a blind eye to injustice. He would not be a loving God. He would not be one that we praise if he says, I'm love, but then turns a blind eye. If one of my daughters came home from school and said that someone had attacked her with a baseball bat and I'm looking at her crying with bruises all over her body, but then I ignore her? If I did not go to school and seek justice, then I'm not a loving loving dad. Does this make sense? True love demands justice. And since justice on earth always seems to fail, what our hearts really long for is this justice from God. Think about it. I mean, literally think about it. There there is no courtroom for most of the hurts in this world, right? No courtroom. There's no small claims court for angry, hurtful words that wound others. There's nowhere to turn for justice when your drug-addicted son or daughter steals restful sleep from you every night of the week. But know this, and find comfort in this. Every injustice, every careless mean word, every abandonment and broken promise will have a day in God's court. And this should both comfort us, and convict us. We want God's justice for others, but we hope he stays away from us. There's a bumper sticker that says, Jesus is returning. Try to look busy, you know? It's like, okay. We can't have it both ways. My friends, this is God's world that we live in. It's not our world. And he made us in his image to reflect his glory as we love him and live life and love our neighbors as ourselves. And so God has a day of judgment coming. He must. Isaiah speaks of this final sacrifice. I know we haven't delved into the text much, but verse six at the very end says, the Lord has a sacrifice in Bozrah a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Now, Isaiah repeatedly mentions the nation of Edom in verse 34. Why? What does it mean? Well, the nation of Edom symbolizes all the peoples of the earth throughout all time who reject God and oppose God's people. Why is this? Well, remember Abraham? Abraham had a son, Isaac, and Isaac had two sons. The eldest was Esau. The youngest was Jacob. Esau despised the promises of God, and he sold his birthright as the firstborn son for a bowl of stew to his brother Jacob. Jacob wasn't the greatest guy either, but Jacob wrestled with God, and God graciously changed his name to Israel. He had 12 sons, from which we get the tribes of Israel. So Esau fathered the Edomites, uh, and, and Jacob fathered the Israelites. Now, fast forward 400 years, God's people are in bondage in Egypt, another story of judgment that must come before salvation. Um, as they come out of Egypt, they're traveling to the Promised Land, and they, the people, this huge group of people, they're hungry and thirsty, and they, they requested to pass through Edom. They even offered to pay for all their water. But the Edomites said, no. Why? See, the Edom, Edom held a grudge against Israel, so they refused to let them go through Now, on a cosmic scale, scale, what what are the Edomites doing? They were trying to block the salvation of God that God is bringing to this very world. And so then Edom is the antithesis to the pilgrim people of God. That is why Isaiah singles them out. You know, the spirit of Edom is a common spirit in the world today. It's a spirit that finds its salvation in the physical, in the temporal things of this world and not in the mercy and the grace of their creator. So the spirit of Edom continues today to fight against God, his authority, and his people. Do we not see this in the world today? I hope you have eyes to see. But a final sacrifice is coming. Again, verse six, for the Lord has a sacrifice in Bozeroth. What, what's Bozrah? Well, it's the capital of Edom. (laughs) And what is the sacrifice? Well, think about it. For all who reject the sacrifice of Christ in God's capital city of Jerusalem, there will be a sacrifice in Edom's capital of Basra. All moral guilt not paid for by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ will be paid by the guilty themselves. So, ponder this. Someone will be sacrificed for your sins, either Christ, who will be your substitute, or you yourself. Which brings us to the second point found in chapter 35, our longing for salvation. Trust me, this one goes a lot quicker. All right, here we go. Uh, I'm going to read Isaiah 35 and then make a few comments on the salvation of God. Here we go. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer. I look forward to that day. And the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool. And the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It belongs to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, (laughs) they shall not go astray. There's hope for me. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. The imagery that Isaiah used is that of our lives being lived in a parched desert. But then God does something amazing. Ray Ortland points out that God starts his renewing work of grace in the desert of our real life. And how could it be otherwise? A dreary desert is really what we are. But God is able to one day give lush growth in life and joyful song. Verse 1 and 2, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and, and blossom like a crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. My friends, if you trust in Christ, there's a day coming in an age to come when you will dance like that Holocaust survivor over his dirty prison clothes. You will dance with giddy joy over the salvation that God has given you. Can you see that? And you will finally see and behold the glory of the Lord face to face. No longer will you live by faith. You will live by sight. And knowing this changes us how? In many ways, but Isaiah says that that we we get to live now helping and strengthening other people. Look at verse 3 and 4. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God. He will come to save you. Living as followers of Christ in an anti-Christ age necessitates encouragement from one another. Jesus has not saved you into solitude. He saves us into community, the body of Christ, the church. And our Lord sees our role here. Um, He wants us to continually encourage one another and be encouraged by others. Remember how Jesus promised to be a well of living water that wells up inside us and overflows into this world. And if that is true, and it is, then we must not, cannot be stagnant. Ortland says there is more to come for us in Christ than we have yet to apprehend. And it always looks like this. Following Christ is never a dead end, but always a threshold. Do you see your life like that? And so Isaiah is calling us to create an atmosphere of expectancy because God is coming to us with full salvation. Verse five and six, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue and the mute sing for joy. Listen, right? Think this through. We are all, in just like, in many ways, right? Not, perhaps not physically, literally, blind and deaf and lame and mute, at least spiritually, right? And so you see what's coming our way? All we contribute to God's salvation is our blindness and our deafness, and our lameness and our silence. But the salvation of God brings such a beautiful outcome. People want to get hung up on the seemingly harsh justice of God. They want to paint God into some corner so they can just disregard him. But do you see what you miss out when you disregard God? You miss out on the glory of salvation what you truly long for. And the proof that you long for God's salvation is because you wrap your life up with salvation on earth and you chase after it, never being fulfilled. But for those who trust in God, there is a fulfillment of salvation, maybe not in this age, but in the age to come. And you also miss out on how the glory of salvation to come changes everything for you in this life here and now. The world we live in functions in some way, in some ways, like a concentration camp. If you do not believe a day of salvation is coming, you will live in the camp, scheming your own measly salvation. And you will live in bitterness, knowing that the salvation that you truly long for is never going to happen. Listen, the salvation you long for is never going to happen but for the Christian. We live in this concentration camp of a world with the evil forces beating down on us, but we know a day is certain to come, and so we can live with this salvation in our hearts today. And we know that though this world has been made inhabitable by sin, including our own sin, there is a day coming when this very planet will be renewed. That is what's described in verses 8 through 10 a renewed world where evil no longer lurks around every corner like a ravenous lion. And the highway shall be there, and and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. No lion will be there, uh, except maybe in a zoo, Uh, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. Obviously this is imagery, right, okay? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain. Listen, they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. What great imagery, right? God has a day to come of everlasting joy, everlasting joy, that causes your sorrow and sighing to flee, to skedaddle, to run, to hightail it, whatever <laughs> words you use. Listen, you might be blind to this. This might be the first time you've heard of this. But your heart longs for this day. To say it doesn't is to lie to yourself. Your heart longs for that day. Perhaps the problem you have is that you just don't believe it's going to happen, but your heart longs for it nonetheless. When the risen Lord departed this world, he promised he would return, and when he returns, he would remake, reform, of course, first judge of this world, and, and he was going to remake this world in perfection. That's what's coming, and God himself will come down and dwell with his people. And how did Isaiah describe God's people in verse 10? We are called what? the ransomed of the Lord. To ransom is to pay a price, to free a prisoner. I don't feel like a prisoner. Well, we're slaves to sin. We're enslaved. We're prisoners. My friends, God has paid the price for your ransom. This is why Jesus came. Yes, I know he's a good teacher. He taught us spiritual truths. Yes, he was a good role model. He modeled for us the the life of God-centered faith. But his mission, why he came, was so that he could ransom us, all who put their faith in him. On his way to the cross, remember, Jesus conveyed his purpose for for living. He said, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Has Jesus done this for you? Has his salvation come to you as a free gift, not something you earn? This morning, Isaiah has vividly shown us two of our great longings our longing for justice, you know, judgment, and our longing for salvation. They go hand in hand. You know, think about it. All of our lives, we've just wanted to be happy. And all our lives, something has always spoiled it. Young people, hear that. There's always, for every joy and happiness you have, there will always be something that spoils it in the end. Either other people's sin will spoil it, they'll take it from you, or your own sin will spoil it. Think of how many marriages have been spoiled by the sins of the husband and wife. Which means that this world is not the way it ought to be. And if something is not the way it ought to be, then it's rightly in need of judgment and removal and renewal. And so it's true. We have a great longing for judgment that only God can give and we have a great longing for salvation that only God can give. In a few moments, we're going to gather for some encouragement. (laughs) Encouragement around this communion table. There, God will show us that in his son on the cross, perfect justice meets perfect love. And our two great longings find their great fulfillment. The judgment of God for our sin fell on his son. And so the salvation of God now rests on us too. Let's pray. Father, what a challenging topic. I feel like we didn't even cover the text as much as we could. But we're thankful that um, we're able to hold these two truths together, that you are God of justice, and that is good. And that you're also God of salvation which is even greater. We thank you for this truth. We pray that you would impress us more and more with what you've done for us through Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen.